deliberative democracy says it doesn't matter who you are, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you know, all knowledge is relevant. Lived experience is as relevant to a debate about road safety as scholarly expertise. Hello and welcome to Pillar Talk, the podcast published by the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society, bringing you conversations about the three pillars of the humanities. In today's episode, your hosts Will and Ollie talk to UQ's very own Dr Alastair Stark about deliberative democracy, crisis management and institutional amnesia in liberal societies. This is a wide-ranging discussion which gets into some pretty fundamental questions about politics and policy. Questions like, what does it mean to be a citizen? What is the proper role of experts in policy creation? And why do our institutions always seem to forget how to manage crises once they're dealt with? So if you find these questions anywhere near as interesting as I do, you're in for a good time. Now, a little disclaimer. This is actually the first ever interview we recorded for this season of Pillar Talk. So if you have any issues with production, audio quality, things like that, firstly, be assured that we're working to fix those things and improve as the podcast develops. But secondly, please do get in touch with us, either via the UQPP Society's Facebook page or our email, publications at uqppes.com.au. Finally, as always, if this episode leaves you with any comments, questions or scathing attacks on our personal intelligence that you feel obliged to make, you can write a letter to the editor of Statecraft, Pillow Talk's sister publication, again via the UQPPE Society on Facebook or the publication's email address. Now, housekeeping aside, I give you Will and Oliver in conversation with Alastair Stark. Welcome to Pillow Talk. We're here with our very first episode for this year. And we're joined by Alistair Stark. Hi, hi, happy to be here on the inaugural Pillow Talk. So, how do you fit into like the PPE world? Where's your position in terms of politics, philosophy and economics? Yeah, good question. I guess I describe myself as a political scientist who studies public policy. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of how I view my scholarship... I, I I locate myself in the bigger world of politics, but very much operate in, I guess, what you would call the subfield of public policy. So that means I, I tend to study policy, but within the larger context of democratic politics. Mm. And what specifically do you do with regards to democratic politics? Like, how do you implement public policy into that sphere, I guess. Mm. So there's two things in terms of what I have done, what I do now. The first is uh, locating policy in what we might broadly call parliamentary democracy or representative democracy. So looking at the relationship between that bigger model of democracy and public policy. That stems from my PhD a long time ago where I looked at uh, how parliamentary democracies uh, relate to and help manage crises mm. so that's how I got into that thinking about that relationship between the broad macro mm. democratic and then specific policy type uh, type relationship the best author to think about that has always been David Easton 
Easton was the first to really kind of think analytically and theoretically about that relationship in a really sophisticated conceptual way and so through Easton I really started thinking about those two things in detail so that was the past and then today I think about those two things in detail through deliberative democracy and deliberative democracy is a, an alternative to that parliamentary democracy built on the principles of speech and deliberation and it's pitched on a grand scale as an alternative to the status quo which would provide more citizen involvement and less representation uh, and it pitches itself as a solution to a whole variety of ills and as that's emerged as an alternative we've had different iterations of it the grand macro normative is what we started with and then we went down through the gears and we had a, an institutional turn where we thought about deliberation in the institutions and now we're at a cultural turn where we think about deliberation out there in society but always my position is to think about what that bigger democratic model can do for public policy. So most recently a paper um, on the value of citizen talk in relation to policy design. So how can we use citizens' conversations about policy, you know, mm. non-expert conversations about policy as an input to formulating good and effective policy? Yeah, how does this idea of, say, deliberative democracy, is it so, like I say, a radical turn from, say, traditional notions of stakeholder engagement mm. and that kind of thing that uh, kind of would have always occurred when talking about policy implementation? Mm. How is it radically different from those kind of more traditional conceptions? Mm. So the difference here is, is fundamental. Rather than citizens being consulted or even participating alongside public servants, bureaucrats and being listened to, which we get in participatory forms of government or stakeholder engagement, deliberative democracy puts the citizen in the decision-making role. Mm. So it turns everything in its head. If a bureaucracy exists, it exists to facilitate the citizen's decision. So that's the first big fundamental difference. But the second one is the reliance on the principles of deliberation to produce rational outcomes. So the idea is if you get citizens in a room to really reflect upon and then decide a direction for public policy, they can be facilitated in a way which will produce a better outcome through their deliberation than what we get through the typical state process. Mm -hmm. So there's a big claim there. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So how do those discussions usually end up to like, do they end up in everyone disagreeing and fighting with each other, or is it a lot more civil than what most people would expect? Well, there's always disagreements. The kind of my experience of running what we call, or being involved in and running what we call mini publics, these are small samples of the citizenship who are brought together to debate and deliberate. My experience of them, there's a couple of patterns. One is citizens are transformed. They come in very much as individuals and typically uncertain and unaware of the topic and how to deliberate. And by day three or day four, I describe them as citizens. So they are mm. owning the process, thinking consensually, listening actively, 
and, and really working towards a sense of the common good. Mm-hmm. And you see that kind of endogenous effect. So there's lots of endogenous effects that transform people as they deliberate. The real problem is the other end. It's the translation into outputs and outcomes by the state. That doesn't happen. So never in any of those many public experiences have I seen the process break down. And I always see the claims of deliberative Democrats. They are always there in the sense that good reports are produced. What we call preference transformation. You listen Mm. to me, I listen to you, and Mm. then we change our mind depending on the force of the argument. I've always seen that. It doesn't happen by itself. It needs facilitation and facilitation. I've always seen those claims, but very rarely have I seen those reports be implemented Mm. or acknowledged. The the thing is, to talk about that, that kind of process of facilitation, how, say, in the kind of physical practice of deliberative democracy, do you ensure that that facilitation doesn't become kind of a coercion or persuasion? Mm. And also the second thing as well, you mentioned there that they were non-expert citizen juries. We've heard a lot in the last couple of years about the role of experts as opposed to just everyday individuals. But so this is, say, more putting the emphasis back on individuals and away from the experts. So those are... Mm. So on the second point, experts in a typical mini-public setting, experts will be present. Mm. And part of the role of any facilitation is to make sure that they are not, as much as you can, prejudicing, biasing, shaping. Right. Mm. So that means experts are there to be asked questions from citizens. They're not there to present mm. positions. Right. So that's... That's that, but it's incredibly difficult. If you have a persuasive, charismatic professor, someone not like me, uh, uh, speaking to citizens, it's very difficult for for that person not to have an effect. And how do you choose those experts to make sure they're not biased towards, say, the people facilitating the discussion and they're not biased towards those Mm. people? So typically they're chosen based on the topic. And they'll, they'll typically be chosen as a, in a kind of functional way. Bias is less relevant, but a good facilitator will work towards ensuring the bias isn't there. But they'll be chosen. So, for example, there was a road safety task force run by the state government. It was a citizen jury type model. We had a behavioural economist and the kind of Sunstein uh, style uh, from QUT. We had a road safety scholar for the practicalities. And then there was me as someone who could give advice on the processes and tools and design of public policy. But to go back to the, the first part of your your other question, how do you stop biases emerging through facilitation? It's impossible ultimately to stop something coming through because we all know just yeah. by being ourselves these things happen. But the facilitation never begin it only begins with a question. So, should the government do this? If so, how? Mm. And then the facilitation begins with zero in terms of expectation, zero in terms of leading, directing, and we just begin with conversation. Mm. The one thing you said before is that people, when they go through this process, at the end become citizens. Mm. Could you explain that like a bit further? Because... Like, everyone kind of thinks of themselves as citizens, but 
I don't think that we act in a general way towards that mm. um, sense of self. Well, I, I would probably dispute that. I think you guys <laughs> and PPE students would mm. innately think of themselves as citizens and have a, probably a really sophisticated understanding of rights, reciprocity, obligations. I think if you think about what a political citizen is, it's someone prepared to engage, prepared to think about the common good, prepared to listen, but ultimately someone who doesn't have apathy. Mm. Right? Mm. So what we know is that people take on the role of citizen juror or citizen deliberator because there's money involved, right? So we'll give you $500, you can fly down to Brisbane, spend a weekend on the river, and pe that's why people step up, right? Other people will step up because they really care about the issue. Mm. Now, the people who don't care about the issue at the start of the deliberation care about it at the end. And what we know is, from survey research, going back to them six months later, a year later, two years later, they care about politics, whereas they never before. Really? So what you're saying, yeah, so what you see in research is this kind of idea of, I didn't care, I wasn't interested, I was allowed to participate in a moment, I was given some authority, I worked with the police commissioner in the case of the road safety, I spoke to the minister, I was listened to over three weekends, and now I read about road safety all the time, yeah. and I have a view and a voice. And That's really interesting, because um, apparently, like the founding fathers of America, like when they first set up Congress, like they went into it with a view that politics is like bad, and like we don't want to participate in politics, and like it just leads to arguments and all that, but when they were going through the process, they're actually views towards political process and discussions, they described it as being heavenly and basically a really enjoyable process into itself, not a means to an end, but an end in itself. So do you think that becoming a citizen, it should be treated as an end in itself or simply a means for better policy? Yeah. So what you're describing is a process output, right? Distinct from the outcome, right? So if we deliberate policy, for four days with the intention of doing some good, that process it will have outcomes distinct from whether or not anyone listens. You know, <laughs> If you vote in an election, you're not influencing the election as an individual agency. You're not getting any individual direct consequences. You're not utility maximising <laughs> to, put it, paradox in, to put it in language that you understand. But there's a sad sense of satisfaction. Mm and a sense of morality and civic duty and citizenship in the process of working through a democratic mm. uh, uh, institution. So those process outcomes are very, very important, right? Because legitimacy is not just about outputs, it's also about input and process. And so deliberative democracy does that. The problem that deliberative democracy in these many events have is what, what happens when you bring somebody in and you commit to allowing them to make a decision and then it's not listened to? Mm -hmm. So increasingly the people that run deliberative events will only do them for government if there is written contractual obligation on behalf of government to act on what the citizens say. Because otherwise you've just went through a futile, costly process committed to giving someone authority 
and then ignored them. Mm. So there are dangers. <laughs> mm. Interesting. So you said when you're having individuals who enter these deliberative democracy processes, some of them weren't engaged necessarily before, mm. some were actually quite engaged before. Mm. Is there, say, a preference in the deliberative democracy process in its kind of practical manifestation? Do you want people who are already very engaged in the topic, or is it better to kind of have you citizens don't know. who might not be? You don't know. So the mm. random sample mm. is the random sample. So typically the random sample we'll get will be of a political territory or a geographical area, and you want it to be as demographic, as representative mm. as possible. So you'll take as, as, as many different views as possible. So some of them will be profoundly affected by the topic under discussion. Mm. Some of them will just be there with sheer apathy but wanting to go to the casino <laughs> over the weekend and have a drink and, and, and a gamble. And that's society. Mm. Yeah. So and, and that takes you to a lovely debate about the qualities of representation. Mm. Who do you want representing you? Who do you want in your parliament? Do you want it somebody like you? Do you want it to be representative of a demographic? Should we have a, a resemblance model where society is replicated in your parliamentary chamber? Would you like it to be someone who has a degree of education, a knowledge of X, Y, Z? Or is the citizen layperson good enough? So deliberative democracy says it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you know, all knowledge is relevant. All knowledge is relevant. Lived experience is as relevant to a, a, a debate about road safety as scholarly expertise because we've all driven a car mm. and so you have moments in deliberations where people can really change the debate just by talking about their personal experience right and a deliberative democrat will tell you those moments are just as if not more important to the creation of policy than a stakeholder exercise with all the technocratic usual suspects. How would you, like the representatives that we have would be very unlikely to share their power mm. as you've also shown your research. Mm. What is the value of these citizen juries to these representatives and how can we realistically implement them for politicians? Mm. Would this be an appendix on to parliamentary democracy or something to replace it? Yeah, so on the latter one, I tend to be not radical in the sense that I think that, that um, and you know, I've written about this in the past, that the reason we have parliamentary democracy is because it is quite rational. You know, it minimises costs and maximises benefits to representatives, right? Mm -hmm. You know, to, the representative system is is the kind of easiest and most implementable type of democracy because mm. it's exclusive, right? It's not a lot of time and resources required to run it, whereas a deliberative democracy will cost you time, effort, money. And so part of the reason that we won't see it on a large scale is because it's just not rational in those terms. But there's a nice institutional middle ground where we can make the status quo much more deliberative. We can, we can run many publics and, and put them in areas where we've not seen real progress. We can make pre-existing deliberative spaces like a parliamentary chambers much more deliberative and inclusive. We can build alternative participatory moments. They don't have to be deliberative, 
but they can be synthesised into the parliamentary system that we have. We can do all of that if we just start from the point of more citizen deliberation is a good thing. So then, well, what does it bring you? So the reason they turn to the road safety citizen's jury is because it's what we would call a wicked problem. Mm. They had they had run out of ideas, mm. right? So they were actually turning to behavioural economics. So senior public servant in, in the Department for Main Roads and Transpo- uh, Transport contacted me and said, no matter what we do, we cannot get yearly road deaths in Queensland down below this point. doesn't matter what we do. We've been tr- trying this for a long time. We're all out of ideas. So what I want to do is turn to citizens, explain behavioural economics to them, and then see if we can get some novel new directions that we can't think mm-hmm. of in policy. Right? So that's one reason. And the other reason... There's many, but the other reason is just the lived experience. You don't get lived experience and data and knowledge about it through the usual suspects of legislative consultation and stakeholder engagement. Mm. You don't get to see and hear from people, right? So what does that give you? It gives you a sensitivity and a different type of data for the creation of public policy. So those are the kinds of things you can get in a kind of policy design sense, but then you get those citizenship effects that I mentioned, and you also get more legitimacy. Mm. Yeah. Thinking of, say, some potential criticisms of deliberative democracy, I'm thinking of, say, Burke, from Brendan Burks when he wrote his letter to the electors of, of Bristol, when he talks about essentially you don't I don't elect me to represent your views, you elect me to think essentially for myself because I'm an expert on on and I'm more knowledgeable essentially than you are. With this idea of say creating mass citizen in, in encouraging citizen engagement, do we necessarily only denigrate the, the role of say an expert or elected representatives in the sense that they might or know more about a topic and do these deliberative democracy um, processes actually yield good outcomes? They might be, say, a good process, but do they actually yield mm. outcomes that are successful? Yeah, so that delegate uh, trustee debate that mm. Burke was obviously a part of, and he would say, you know, I'm your trustee because I know more than you, and I'll, I'll do whatever I want. That doesn't exist in the sense that we have party politics and whips. <laughs> so the idea of politicians going into Parliament and saying, no, I'm here to debate the national interest as a trustee, I've been given that trust by my electors, and I'm knowledgeable enough to say whatever I want, and we're all free, equal, and going to create the... In some ways, that's what deliberative democracy is, right? Buck was saying, let's let's debate as equals, and the, the collective good will be facilitated. But you don't. You have whips who tell you what to do. There is no trustee. So you could say you could say elected MPs are delegates of the party rather than, you know, their constituencies, which perhaps they could be, but they're certainly not trustees, regularly trustees anymore. So that's the first point. And then the, the on the, the earlier point, I think what do you get? You get really good outcomes. I've never I've never been part of and many publicly didn't produce a good report, and so that then just when you when you when you look at some reports that are produced in Parliament, 
that are coloured, shaped, manipulated, abused, perverted by party politics into being meaningless documents and you compare them to the kind of uh, things that are produced by citizens, you know, there's a real difference but there's certainly no lack of quality. The citizens that deliberated on road safety produced a fantastic package of policy solutions based on the principles of behavioural economics. You you just think about that and then think about parliamentary reports that you might read. I mean, who's the more sophisticated? Who who would Edwin Buck look to and go, oh, there's a bit of sophistication there, you know? And so what you get in terms of outcomes is, is quality, high quality, and you get innovation. But we don't want innovation a lot of the time because it's scary and costly and... Yeah. Would you say, first of all, were, were those policies and policy solutions actually implemented and taken on board? No, never. Really? Why, why do you think never. that is? Because, well, there's a whole host of reasons. <laughs> um, <laughs> where should we start? <laughs> uh, so, I did one in Glasgow mm-hmm. and it was on respite care for... for social policy, so respite care is when people who have long-term caring responsibilities for people with significant learning physical disabilities, they need some respite. So you put a carer in, so typically a family member can step out, sometimes you send them somewhere, you give them that respite. It's a costly social policy, but it's absolutely crucial, right? So uh, this mini-public deliberated And the the question was, how can we better resource uh, respite care policy? And they wanted to connect the local government systems of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. It's not a big country. You could fit it all in Queensland, right? So why not connect the resources and use spare capacity in each of these and build a, a national system? As soon as that was put on the table, it was just mocked. It was mocked because it was um, naive and ignorant of the real politic of local government life, right? So it's possible, doable, requires will, requires resources, requires different thinking, could have worked. But busy public servants who operate in a business-as-usual mode don't have time to innovate on the basis of some group of citizens, no matter how much the minister might think that's a good solution. In the Brisbane case, it was exactly the same. The bureaucrats in in the department were really busy, overworked, stressed, and these solutions were seen as too innovative, too costly, and something that might have been done if they had time, money and resources. So there's a there's a threat presented by innovation. Mm. Mm. So do you think that um, this would have been something easier to implement, say, 50 years ago? Oh, no, not 50 years ago, it's 1970s, but, say, 60 years ago when the public service was much bigger, or...? No, I don't, I don't think... I think but that 60 years ago the public service was just rife with patronage and mm. it was even more problematic than it is now. At least we live in a moment now where 
things like citizen participation are at least recognised as legitimate. Yeah. Whereas before, the halcyon days of the public service were not very nice and welcoming yeah. and friendly to the average citizen. So we're in a moment where it's possible. But if you think about where it exists, right, where where's deliberative democracy flourish, right? Places like Porto Alegre in, in Brazil, right, where corruption was so profound at the local government level that they had to act. So they gave citizens responsibility for local government budgets, right? So real desperation, right? So that's one example, right? Desperate need to sort out corruption. Let's open up the budget to everyday citizens. Scotland, a moment in time where you have the chance to actually build something from scratch, right? You don't have all that, those path dependencies, all those problematic accretions of institutions, all that layering. You have a moment in time where you can build from scratch. So you build participatory elements into your political system. So get getting something which is radical, different, challenging into business as usual policy and politics is incredibly difficult. You need a moment in time or you need to be so desperate that you'll try anything. And, you know, there is a strong argument for saying not fundamentally that broken yet. Mm. Mm. It's kind of your punctuated equilibrium. Yeah. What would happen? What would you need to do to to start radically changing the status quo when most people are happy with the apathy. <laughs> mm. It's actually quite funny you mentioned saying the, the idea that you almost need a, a certain a moment for things to come through. I was saying it was just quite interesting listening to, say, Cameron Murray the other um, night for our UQPBS Statecraft lecture. We were talking about Singapore's housing policy, mm. which came in quite a radical proposal after a, in a suburb burnt down and 20,000 people were made homeless. There was that moment where the full radical policy that it just wouldn't have happened if it kind of continued to ebb and flow. And now a brief word from our platinum sponsor, KPMG. KPMG provide a range of professional services for business, non-profits and government, including consulting on the design and implementation of key government policies. They offer two programs that might interest you, their 12-month graduate program and their four to eight week vacation program for students in their penultimate year. Both are fantastic opportunities for anyone interested in consulting or in building their skills at solving complex policy problems. For more information, check out this episode's description or reach out to the UQPPE Society and we can put you in touch with one of our contacts at KPMG. Now, back to our chat with our stock. Changing, changing tactics, but it's obviously from deliberative democracy to kind of your other focus area, which is just crisis mm. kind of management. Mm. I think, I don't know whether you would have found it, say, the last few years has been, say, a moment in the field for crisis management, so to speak, with mm. things like the, the pandemic coming in and then looking at how liberal democracies have responded to, to that crisis. Mm. Say, with your kind of background and knowledge in kind of crisis management, crisis response, have you got any kind of key insights of things you've seen from the last... Yeah. say the, the pandemic and, and whatnot as kind of that being that big crisis and how it's been managed absolutely I've got quite a lot of things yeah. like <laughs> I didn't expect you would <laughs> so on the pandemic so you know the longer you do this game studying crisis and disasters the less novelty you see obviously right and then you have a kind of generation defining pandemic like this the tendency is to think of it and as 
really extraordinary. But actually, when you look at the pandemic and you look at the challenges of crisis management from a policy perspective, and also the challenges of understanding it from a scholarly perspective, there's nothing new in it. All the challenges of the pandemic are challenges which people were talking about in relation to well, SARS, obviously, <laughs> and flu, influenza, flood management, you know, earthquake management. The challenges are all the same. And so we spent a long time in a special issue in the, the Journal of European Public Policy saying to people, the only thing that's different here is scale. Right. scale all the challenges you know the use of expertise the connection between expertise and politics they need to move quickly they need to get ahead of adaptations they need to message single uh, signal legitimise all the characteristics are the same the policy challenges and therefore we're actually quite well equipped as policy scholars to understand and contribute to uh, the pandemic uh, uh, research and that in itself is really interesting, but where the novelty and the, the, the uncertainties to some extent exist is, is scale. So when you have a global, a truly global pandemic, what you have is an infinite amount of comparisons to make, right? Mm. As a politician, decision maker, policy maker. And what's novel about the pandemic is that infinite comparative capacity which makes it incredibly difficult to ever achieve success because there's always somebody doing it better than you, there's always somebody doing it quicker than you, and you'll be doing it better and quicker than somebody else in some other area. <laughs> but as a composite whole, people are quicker at closing, people are quicker at opening, people are quicker at vaccinating, people are quicker at, at, at signalling. And what that means is you'll never succeed and so that problem of scale and the politics of crisis that really interests me in relation to the pandemic as something novel but the actual challenge so I studied SARS you know to 10 odd years ago I came out of China went to Hong Kong killed a few people in Canada you know you read SARS and you read COVID it's only scale that's different there's nothing else but the lessons of SARS you can go and read them all <laughs> they're the lessons of COVID so we, we, we do have this tendency to say this is abnormal and extraordinary and of course it is getting three new vaccinations <laughs> lining up in showgrounds to be vaccinated mm. it's an extraordinary moment but from a policy and a research point of view it's the same old stuff mm. That's really interesting how you say there was like lots of comparability between different policy implementations because one of the things that like I, when I was doing my behavioural economics course was that when consumers are faced with too many choices, they make a worse choice and actually it's not about um, choice maximisation in order to utility maximise, quote unquote utility maximise, but it's rather that you got to present good options available. So it's yeah, it's quite interesting that that breakdown of um, massive array of choices just breaks down the policy cycle. When most people would be like, 
more policy options, awesome. Mm. Like we can choose that one or that one. Mm. But obviously, but not in the crisis. Yeah. So you, the the fundamental thing about a crisis is it's not a crisis if you're not ill informed. <laughs> if it's not a crisis if 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 you have good data, <laughs> it's not a crisis if you if you are if you're certain about some things. And so real crises are moments where you don't you can't do option appraisal. There's no option appraisal in a real crisis, right? So then what's the rationality through which you take a decision in a disaster? Mm. If something's on fire and you're staring at it, you don't have option appraisal, right? Your your rationality becomes something different. It becomes historical analogues, training, gut instinct, you know, uh, could be emotions, could be religion. There's a whole series of different rationalities that you can draw on. And if you're not in that uncertain space, you're not really in a crisis. Yeah, that's, that's mm. quite interesting because I was just reading a book on radical uncertainty and they were saying that like firefighters, when they're faced with a crisis, they don't go through every single option, but it is rather a gut instinct. And mm. when you're in a crisis, the fact that the future is radically uncertain means that utility maximising and choice optimization is not an option. The best option you can have to go by is simply satisfying, which is just a mm. fancy word for mm. choosing an option that's good mm. enough. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. In and out of crisis, yeah, <laughs> to right. be honest. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, you don't have data, you don't have uh, uh, evidence of a good quality. The nature of the crisis means whatever you do have, it'll be moving and shape-shifting and changing in ways which undermine it. So, you know, you get rapid evaluation, you get rapid data, but it's not going to help you do your option appraisal. Firefighters are completely correct. What do you do? You train, you have a knowledge of... Uh, historical analogue and then you just use heuristics right mm -hmm. it's kind of system one system two uh, you got to think fast and you're going to think slow right so what's your alternatives because you don't have data option appraisal you train the hell out of things <laughs> and then you see it and you act yeah. and you hope your uh, analogue and your heuristic takes you yeah. to where you want to be that's the difference between an amazing crisis manager and somebody who's going to get killed. <laughs> so people and in those policymakers in that say the, the COVID uh, situation were acting in that way. They're kind of making policy on the hoof, satisficing. But there was this kind of learning out there already from things like SARS. Mm. Kind of baby being a bit broad, but were those ideas and those learnings from SARS kind of picked off the shelf and utilised? Or did a lot of it kind of remain getting dusty and people trusted their gut and maybe there was, even though there was kind of immediately available analogs available to them? Yeah, so some, in some locations, like, you know, if you look at Ontario, for example, you know, it's a good example. They handled SARS a lot more, of, uh, sorry, they handled COVID a lot more effectively than they did SARS. So you can look at a place like that and you can see learning having taken place, right? But then typically what happens with lessons learned is they, they, they exist for a little bit of time and then they're forgotten and fade, they fade away. And so if they're not institutionalised quickly, they won't have an effect in 10 years' time. So this is why we see the cyclical debates on the floods. We don't learn lessons. We, uh, why do we continue to have 
floods every decade or so where we see the same traits, right? The it's it's a mistaken and it's erroneous and problematic to have the debate we're having just now playing out in the media based upon the concept of lesson learning. Because lessons are learned, many of them are implemented, but then they're forgotten. It's ten years between floods, significant floods for a lot of people. In that space, if you if you manage to institutionalise and hold on to lessons, as they did with the dam here, then you can see success, but more often than not, natural dynamics will lead to institutional amnesia. So the question is not how we learn lessons, it's how do we remember them and how do we hold them? Where that breaks down is in a place like Lismore, where it's flooded every year, right? And that's a different question. That's a question about bigger structures, investment, change and real motivation and wish for change. So the people of Lismore have a huge amount to be angry about. They don't need lessons, right? They they know they know how to stop that flood. They don't need lessons. They need authority and empowerment and resources. So do we learn lessons? We do, but we forget many more. Hmm. So what are some of the things that are, like, causes institutional amnesia? Like, why do we keep forgetting how to deal with this kind mm. of stuff? Mm. You mentioned in one of your papers that it was, like, a high turnover of people. Do you think that's become more of a problem? Well, interestingly enough, I've just been wading through some statistics on that. So I have a... Australian Research Council grant which is comparing the turnover of public servants in part comparing the turnover of public servants in the UK, Australia and New Zealand and we see the trend in terms of people leaving the public service at the senior management uh, uh, in those senior management roles in Australia that's increasing so if we compare the, the last two decades we actually see a 25% increase in senior managers leaving the Australian public service right? between those two uh, periods. So it's increasing here. Uh, it's holding relatively steady in New Zealand and UK is up and down. Dep- depends on the year, right? But when people leave, they take their memory with them. And so... That's the problem. People come, people go. Certain departments, a prime minister in cabinets uh, or a premier in cabinets, they are fluctuating rapidly. It's like a, it's like a revolving door. Mm. Those kind of departments, people are just coming and going and they're seconding through. If you look at the ATO or any other expert type agency, you get a little less fluctuation. Typical service delivering agencies tend to operate in the middle. So, yeah, those trends basically affect memory. Yeah, mm-hmm. But there's more than that. There's storytelling and other different cultural dimensions to it as well. Yeah. Right. Mm. Okay. So, I think, say, we're, we're kind of running out of time. So, just before we go, let's say one last little piece to do for the PPU podcast. Do you have a book that you'd recommend that our listeners read? One book and why? 
Oh. To kind of end the end the podcast with yeah one book and why absolutely I would just go back to the start and say read David Easton's Systems Analysis of Political Life if you want a comprehensive understanding of the nature of uh, contemporary liberal democracies which is both sophisticated but so profoundly simple that it's meaningful uh, Easton is is your man. Okay. I continually go back to him. One of the few that I really do. And the start of that analytical philosophy, often dismissed as somebody who was producing theory for behaviourism, but that's not the case. Mm. Mm. So systems analysis of political life. Okay. Perfect. Right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Al Stark, pleasure talking to you today for the inaugural episode of Pillar Talk, run by the UQ PPA Society. Thank you very much. Catch you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Pillar Talk is published by Statecraft, the publications branch of the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. It is produced by Will Splatt and co-produced and edited by me, Tom Watson. Our music was created by the PPA Society's very own Isaac Haynes. In the interests of getting this episode out on time, we decided to forgo a lengthy fact-check on this occasion. However, references to Dr. Stark's scholarly work and references to the claims made about behavioural economics in this episode can all be found in the episode description. Pillar Talk will be back in two weeks' time with an interview with Dr. Begonia Dominguez all about inflation. What's causing this current moment of inflation? Is it always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon? And what can policymakers do to keep it under control? Find out in episode two. Thanks for listening.